I'm Dr. I'm a clinical psychologist and the director of integrative medicine and bereavement services at the MJHS Institute for Innovation in Palliative Care in New York City. I would like to welcome you to the 12th webinar in the MJHS Interprofessional Webinar Series. My topic today is Management of Depression and Anxiety in Advanced Illness. I have no disclosures. And I think we all agree that adequate and competent palliative care and hospice care need to extend beyond pain management and symptom control and need to address, effectively address, the psychological, psychiatric, and existential needs of patients with advanced illness. So my goal today, uh, with that in mind, is to review the prevalence and clinical presentation of depression and anxiety in advanced illness. I will talk about assessment tools, diagnosis, and differential diagnosis, and present evidence-based interventions that can effectively improve symptoms and improve patients' quality of life. And hopefully I will keep this presentation very clinical so that it will be relevant to many of you joining us today. The burden of depression in advanced illness is significant. Depressive syndromes are common and yet still undertreated and underrecognized in advanced illness. If there is one thing that I would like you to take away from this talk today, uh, hopefully there will be more, but if I were to focus on one thing, it would be that when treating depression, we need to be as passionate and as proactive um, as when treating pain and other symptoms. A patient who's depressed may present withdrawn, primarily withdrawn or lethargic. So it may be a little challenging to con connecting really with, with how much psychological distress and how much suffering they are experiencing. Um, however, it is a crisis. Depression should be considered with urgency and should be actively treated. Because if you think about it, depression really deprives patients and families from the opportunity um, of, of connecting uh, with each other, experiencing what they would like to experience, connecting to sources of meaning and purpose. So it's really important that when we identify a patient with depression, we don't sit back, we don't take a passive stance, but we get together as a team right away to develop treatment approaches that can really benefit the patient and the family. Uh, not to mention that um, depression really increases the risk for suicidal ideation, desire for hasten death, uh, attempted suicide, and also completed suicide. So the prevalence of depression in advanced illness is also significant. In the literature, you will find uh, rates that go between 3 to 58%. This is clearly a wide range, and it is so wide because it depends on the assessment methodology utilized in each individual study. So an assessment methodology that has a low threshold for inclusion of cases will clearly give you a, a larger prevalence and vice versa. However, we know that in pancreatic cancer, for example, the prevalence is up to 40 to 50 percent. We, uh, we know that males with uh, pancreatic cancer are 11 times at higher risk of suicide than the general population. In children with cancer, the prevalence is being rated at 10 to 14 percent. Also, non-cancer patients uh, are at higher risk for experiencing uh, clinical depression. In end-stage renal disease, the rates go up to 27%. Uh, Parkinson's disease, up to 40%. Multiple sclerosis, up to 35%. And advanced heart failure, up to 46%. And end-stage AIDS, up to 52%. So you see that the, the prevalence is really significant. So why is depression still under-recognized and under-treated? 
there are several barriers to uh, diagnosis and treatment. And uh, some of the barriers have to do with knowledge, some with skills, and some with attitudes. And as I'm going, uh, as I go over this, these barriers, I would like to encourage you to identify uh, some of the challenges that you may experience in your own setting, whether it is uh, inpatient, outpatient, palliative care, hospice, uh, hospital, or community. What are the challenges that you experience when um, diagnosing and treating depression? Commonly, there is a belief that depression and advanced illness is normal, is to be expected. This is incorrect. What is uh, normal is a grieving process that can cause significant distress, of course, but it's kind of intermittent with depressive symptoms. Um, clinical depression is not normal, it's a psychiatric illness, it's a disorder that should be actively treated, and it's not an expected component of advanced illness and the end of life. Clearly, there can be challenges in differentiating what is a normal a grieving process with depressive symptoms and what is pathology. There's also the overlap of neurovegetative symptoms in depression and advanced illness. Think about um, insomnia, think about weight loss, difficulty concentrating, fatigue. There are also medications and medical conditions that can mimic depression. There's also a fear, a generalized fear of over-pathologizing uh, over end of life. And so in an effort to not over-pathologize patients, we may actually go to the other extreme of not treating a condition that causes significant distress and could potentially be reversed. There are also legitimate concerns about the use of psychotropic medication, concerns about drug-to-drug -drug interactions, concerns about not adding to the symptom burden that patients are already experiencing. So all these barriers are reasonable and understandable, and I think our goal as clinicians is really to understand the challenges that we face, deconstruct them, address them, so that we can move our practice to the next level and become even more competent in addressing these needs. There are several risk factors for depression that I think it's important to keep in mind. And on the top of the list, I would put a prior history of depression, uh, whether the patient has had a, a major depressive episode in the past or um, whether it's a family history of depression. And when you hear that a patient has had depression in the past, I think we really need to slow down the process at that point and really fully understand what are the implications, what actually happened, uh, how the patient presented, what were the circumstances around um, experiencing that depressive episode? How was the patient treated? Uh, was medication involved? Did the patient respond to medication? And also, most importantly, why is the patient not in treatment now? Um, how long has the patient been in remission? We need to keep in mind that um, after one major depressive episode, there is an exponentially higher risk of relapse. So the stressors of involved in advanced illness and end of life may actually cause a relapse. So we need to keep this in mind. Also very important, poorly controlled pain and other symptoms that can really mimic depression. Um, it's not even appropriate to uh, diagnose a patient with major depression in the context of poorly managed pain and other symptoms. Other medical risk factors for depression that have been recognized uh, in the literature are metabolic abnormalities, and we know of hypercalcemia, electrolyte imbalance, also endocrinologic abnormalities such as hyper or hypothyroidism and adrenal insufficiency. There are also several medications that can um, in increase the risk factors for, for depression. Uh, we know about steroids, uh, beta blockers, barbiturates, 
interferon and interleukin-2, and a number of chemotherapy agents that are commonly utilized, but definitely are associated with a higher risk for depression. So if we uh, talk about assessment, how do we recognize what are the most appropriate tools? What should we do, keeping in mind the risk factors? And let's say we uh, need a patient who may exhibit that persistent low mood and anhedonia and uh, difficulty interacting and is withdrawn and lethargic and perhaps tearful. I think it's important to keep in mind to, to be familiar with the criteria from the DSM, the DSM-5, the latest edition, uh, as a general framework. But it's also important to utilize, I believe, the Endicott substitution criteria, which allows us to uh, replace the somatic symptoms of depression, which clearly overlap with um, um, symptoms of advanced illness, to replace these symptoms with psychological uh, symptoms. You can also ask the patient a very simple question that is shown to be very specific, uh, are you depressed? Um, however, there are some problems with this, with these questions because patients from other cultures may not conceptualize depression the way that mainstream culture does. So they may experience depression more as a somatic experience and they may not be willing to verbalize or acknowledge depression because of, because of the stigma associated with this, this diagnosis. In terms of screening instruments, I think they can be helpful and I wanted to uh, suggest some of the ones that I find are less burdensome for the patient and can be effectively utilized in the clinical setting. For example, the Boston short form, uh, 10 items, uh, it can be administered in less than five minutes. Uh, it really focuses on psychological symptoms, which is important. That's really what we want to do when assessing depression in the medically ill, and especially in the palliative population. We want to focus on psychological symptoms. Uh, the hospital anxiety and depression scale is also very effective and doesn't focus as much on somatic symptoms. And the geriatric depression scale, also appropriate, um, 15 items, relatively short, not too burdensome for the patient. I wanted to make a comment about assessment. I think the, the clinical interview is still the hallmark, really the, the gold standard for, um, for uh, assessment uh, in the, uh, the palliative care setting, uh, assessment of, of depression. Um, we can use screening tools, and I think that can be very appropriate, but we need to frame the assessment as a kind of a therapeutic assessment. So as we gather information from the patient, it becomes an opportunity to deepen our relationship, our connection with the patient. Um, it's also an opportunity for us to give back. As we hear our patient's concerns, we can um, reframe some of their concerns, we can provide reassurance, we can uh, provide psychoeducation. So it's very important that we don't simply burden the patient with a checklist um, asking a number of questions without uh, really giving something in return. It should be a, an opportunity for a therapeutic um, meeting really with the patient and the family. So just to summarize quickly the features of major depression according to the DSM-5, you want to focus on uh, depressed mood or loss of interest uh, most of the time. Um, also, according to the DSM, there are other symptoms that need to be present to make a diagnosis of uh, clinical depression. The behavior is agitated or slowed down, there is fatigue or lack, lack of energy, uh, the patient may feel a sense of worthlessness or extreme guilt. 
There's decreased ability to concentrate and make decisions, weight loss or gain, frequent thoughts of deaths or attempts, suicide attempts, and insomnia or hypersomnia. Now, the four items in green that you can see on the screen are really the somatic symptoms of depression. And so Endicott suggested replacing these somatic symptoms with psychological symptoms. And I think this framework can be very helpful. Instead of looking paying attention to weight loss or gain, um, let's focus on depressed appearance. So is the patient presenting depressed? Does the patient have a depressed appearance? Um, is there social withdrawal? Is the patient becoming more withdrawn, more disengaged, uh, less talkative? Um, is there brooding, self-pity? pessimism? Has the patient really developed a negative self-concept, a negative narrative about the self, about the world, about others? Is there also lack of reactivity? Do you get the sense that the patient cannot be cheered up, that there is almost like an, an emotional barrier <coughs> Excuse me, between you and the patient when you, when you sit down with them? And there, you really get the sense that there's nothing you can do to um, to go in to make a connection with the patient. So these are some of the things that we need to keep in mind when making an assessment and really focusing on psychological uh, symptoms. There are some elements of differential diagnosis, however, that we also need to keep in mind. And the two main uh, differential diagnoses that we should consider are hypoactive delirium and grief reactions. Hypoactive delirium, it's important to recognize it because, of course, if we administer an antidepressant or a psychostimulant to a patient with delirium, we will cause agitation, anxiety, possible uh, psychosis and make the, the situation worse. In hypoactive delirium, you will see psychomotor retardation, as in depression. Uh, you may see lethargy. Uh, the patient may appear withdrawn. However, in delirium, there is a reduced awareness of surroundings. And generally, we don't see that in depression. Uh, delirium is um, one of the hallmarks of delirium is the fluctuating level of consciousness, which generally we don't see in major depression. In grief reactions, well, grief reactions are an expected component of, of living with advanced illness and also end of life. They can cause significant distress with depressive symptoms. However, in grief reactions, you do get the sense that the patient has retained some ability to experience well-being. We often talk about pleasure, but I think we're talking more about well-being or a sense of connectedness uh, with the loved ones, with uh, um, team members, medical uh, members of a medical team, with even a volunteer, uh, with someone they, that they can connect with. So there is a fluctuating um, um, uh, low mood that uh, is replaced. This intermittent, really, there are moments of profound, there can be moments of profound despair, but also there are moments, uh, moments where the patient is able to experience some level of peace and well-being. In terms of general treatment considerations, um, the number one recommendation is really to manage any uncontrolled symptoms. And again, uh, to remember that there are also diseases that are generally not considered painful that can be associated with moderate to severe pain, such as in heart disease. So we never want to underestimate or undertreat um, physical uh, symptoms. Also, um, just to keep in mind that we don't want to obsessively focus on the criteria that I just described, because if you get the sense that the patient is really experiencing excessive guilt, a sense of hopelessness, helplessness, worthlessness, and in terms of excessive guilt, I'm not talking about some of the um, expected and understandable guilt that some patients experience because they may feel that they have contributed 
to their own illness, such as in cirrhosis of the liver, for example, for patients who were alcoholics, or patients who used to smoke and develop lung cancer. There is some guilt that is um, part of the process and unfortunately causes distress. But here we're talking about excessive guilt that often um, goes beyond the illness itself and extends to other areas that have nothing to do with the illness. Um, depression that causes impairment in quality of life. So if you notice this, um, it is important to treat, to develop an integrated treatment plan even if the patient doesn't fully meet criteria for major depressive disorder. Um, it's important to keep in mind that successful treatment can decrease desire for hasten death. Um, so it is really crucial, it's paramount that we actively uh, address, recognize, and do the best that we can to treat uh, major depression. Let's focus now, switch gears for a moment, and talk about pharmacological management, which is one of the options. And when I um, mentioned earlier treating aggressively, I don't necessarily mean um, only medication. Uh, clearly, we want to talk about a combined approach, and there are many issues that need to be considered. Um, the uh, aggressive treatment means to be really alert, um, refers to being alert and getting together as a team and strategizing. Um, that is really that, that the proactive approach that we, we want to encourage. In terms of pharmacological management, there is general lack of high quality evidence in, uh, with palliative care and, and, and hospice patients. We have more data with a cancer population or um, in primary care. Uh, however, randomized trials and meta-analysis also that have included um, patients who are seriously ill have indicated effectiveness of the antidepressants. So there's a, there's a reason uh, uh, to use these medications. Also, a recent uh, systematic review has um, examined 25 placebo-controlled randomized trials and which have indicated the benefit of treatment with antidepressants over placebo within four to five weeks. So the main classes of medication that are utilized to treat depressions are the uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, um, tricyclics, not really as a first line, we'll talk about it in a moment, atypical antidepressants, and psychostimulants. So now going back, just some general guidelines. Uh, the practice guidelines uh, for uh, treatment of depression in primary care, uh, published in 2008, really recommend starting um, with uh, SSRIs as a first line of treatment in a case of depression. And then if treatment with an SSRI fails, then uh, should be um, an SNRI should be considered and then an atypical. SSRIs are recommended as a first line of treatment because of the more favorable uh, side effect profile. And this is important because we're dealing with a population, palliative care and hospice patients, who are already very vulnerable and very debilitated. There are no studies that really indicate superiority of one SSRI uh, um, over the other. I think what we need to do is really uh, look at side effect profile and the target symptoms primarily. And also it's important to know uh, if the patient has been depressed in the past, uh, what medication have they received, and if they have responded to that medication, it's important, it's reasonable to use the same medication again. Some general things to keep in mind, fluoxetine is um, activating, so it could be helpful in patients who experience fatigue and somatic symptoms of depression. However, it has a long half-life, so it takes weeks to uh, reach a steady state. Uh, on another, uh, another note, however, you don't really need to uh, do a slow taper because of the half-life. Uh, one problem with fluoxetine is a potent inhibitor of the cytochrome P450. 
So you want to make sure that if you have, you're working with a palliative care and you know this palliative care who's still receiving um, other medication regimens, including tamoxifen, for example, we want to make sure that we don't use fluoxetine because um, it really would interfere with the metabolism of tamoxifen, uh, the conversion of tamoxifen into the active metabolite um, endoxifen, which is really regulated by the cytochrome P450, the, that enzyme system. Uh, Sertoline generally well tolerated, uh, low risk of insomnia, um, some GI distress really in terms of the main side effects, and this is something to consider uh, in, in our population. Um, but it's generally well tolerated and a minimum of really um, 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 minimal drug interaction also it's not a really uh, significant inhibitor of the cytochrome P450. Paroxetine, uh, more sedating and uh, can be useful for patients who have um, in depression but also with an anxiety component which is quite common, uh, moments of fearful uh, agitation. Escitalopram is also approved for a generalized anxiety disorder, so it's also uh, helpful with patients who experience uh, depression and anxiety and really is a um, very minimum, minimal drug interactions and it's not a potent inhibitor of the cytochrome P450. Escitalopram is a well-tolerated drug in general, needs to be tapered. Um, however, recent recommendations have really changed the maximum dose to 40 uh, because of concerns about QT prolongation. It's important to remember that in older patients over 60, actually the maximum dose should be 20. So you want to think about these considerations when choosing an antidepressant and what are we trying to target and what is the core of the um, depressive experience of the patient? Is it more somatic, endogenous depression or more uh, anxious uh, depression? Um, Venlafaxine and duloxetine, two novel agents that are also uh, helpful, have been uh, shown to be uh, somewhat effective in the treatment of neuropathic uh, pain. So they can be utilized for patients, for example, venlafaxine is more activating, so it can be used for patients, again, who suffer from melancholic depression. Um, and also uh, diabetic neuropathy or chemotherapy-related neuropathies. Um, Venlafaxine needs to be tapered very slowly. Uh, even at the lowest dose, the starting dose of 37.5, it's important to taper very slowly because the discontinuation syndrome is, uh, can be significant and very distressing for the patient for, with dizziness and nausea. Uh, duloxetine also approved for uh, anxiety disorder, generalized anxiety, so also helpful uh, with the management of depression and anxiety and also effective in, uh, um, for, uh, as an adjuvant in, uh, in pain. Tricyclics are really generally not uh, recommended uh, for in the palliative care population as a first-line treatment because of their potent um, anticholinergic side effects and, and which really would, would add to the symptom burden. Uh, think about the dry mouth, the constipation, blurred vision, um, orthostatic hypotension can be dangerous for patients at risk of falls. But you may have patients who have been on these antidepressants for, for some time. So it's important to remember that the zipramine, for example, uh, is more activating and can, again, be uh, useful for patients who feel low energy. Uh, Nortriptyline is more sedating, so it's generally given at night, and it's used uh, to help patients who have difficulty sleeping. Tricyclics have shown to be effective in the management of pain. They have demonstrated to have some independent analgesic properties. So this is another factor to be to take into consideration. And in terms of atypical antidepressant, 
Bupropion uh, is generally not chosen as a first line, is an atypical, uh, is activating, can cause anxiety, it's associated with uh, some cognitive toxicity, it lowers the seizure threshold, so that should be kept in mind. However, it has dopaminergic activity, so um, it can be helpful and considered in patients with Parkinson's disease. Atrazodone generally used uh, because of its sedating qualities, so it can be used as an effective agent or to augment um, another SSRI. And mirtazapine uh, is also uh, an important um, uh, antidepressant, actually, impactive end of that care because it is sedating and also it improves appetite, which is, these are two of the adverse effects that you may want to use to improve appetite in patients and also address anxiety and difficulty sleeping. And psychostimulants are a very interesting class of, uh, of medications in this, for this population and they're being increasingly utilized for the treatment of depression. Um, as we know, SSRIs take a few weeks to become effective. Uh, psychostimulants can uh, become effective and you may notice an improvement in stamina, in cognition, in overall energy, psychophysical energy, and also appetite. You may notice improvement in 24 to 48 hours. And this is significant, so these are uh, medications that we, we may want to consider when patients have uh, weeks to live. Now you may ask, well, why would we want to treat depression so aggressively with medications that carry side effects um, when the prognosis is so short in the order of weeks? What are we hoping to accomplish by treating depression a few weeks before uh, the end of life? And I think this is a really good question that we should definitely ask our patients. And I think they should be also, uh, they should participate in this uh, decision-making process. Uh, just to give an example, I remember a, a case, um, a 75-year-old gentleman uh, with a metastatic colon cancer. He had to be, he used to be a banjo player all his life, he was a musician. However, had been depressed and been feeling very depressed uh, for, for some time and had been unable, as also his illness continued to progress and may continue to decline, unable to really uh, play his instrument. So was depressed and withdrawn and he was asked, well, if we could help you with some medication, perhaps to feel a little bit more energetic, would you like that? Would that be a desirable result? And what would you do? And he said, I really would like to be able to play my banjo one more time. And you know, people had, even on the team, they, they used to talk about him as this lovely gentleman who used to play the banjo. And nobody was thinking about, well, uh, how does he feel about not being able to do that anymore? He was started on 15 milligrams of modafinil, um, and which he tolerated well, and within a day and a half, he had really enough energy, psychophysical energy, to um, grab his banjo and start playing again, which he continued really every day. Uh, the medication was titrated up to 100, um, but after a couple of days, he started to experience some adverse effects, such as headache and a little bit of internal restlessness. So the medication was tapered down again to 50, and he was stable on it, was well tolerated. Um, so this is something to keep in mind. It may be really worthwhile to improve um, mood and energy level in patients even when they're very, very close to death. And we want this to be a collaborative process with the patient and the family. So just to summarize, when choosing an antidepressant, we want to focus on side effect profiles, available time frame for treatment, patients' past treatment response, and target symptoms and use of adverse effects. 
just one additional comment about uh, psychostimulants. Sometimes they're also used uh, when patients have a longer prognosis, but the symptoms are so severe, the endogenous symptoms of depression are so severe that a, a psychostimulant will be started at the first and then followed by an SSRI, and as the psychostimulant is tapered down, the, um, the SSRI is increased. So that's another um, way to address depression when you try to care patients with a longer prognosis with really profound endogenous somatic symptoms. Now, no treatment uh, of, for depression is complete without considering uh, psychological integrated interventions, which actually can replace medication. They can be an adjunct to medication, and I think they should probably be, uh, in a way, a first line of treatment. Uh, supportive psychotherapy, very effective in um, promoting connectedness, helping patients think through the challenges, identify difficulties, and working through uh, some of their concerns. It promotes bonding with the team, bonding with uh, family members, uh, and also uh, uh, promotes a really positive sense of self and well-being. Cognitive therapies can be very effective in addressing irrational beliefs, maladaptive beliefs that can generate hopelessness and helplessness. Meaning-centered psychotherapy and dignity therapy are two, uh, I would say, evidence-based interventions that really have shown to be very effective in improving depression and, uh, and improving, improving symptoms of depression and improving overall well-being. Uh, they are uh, time-limited structured interventions, meaning-centered psychotherapy really focused on helping patients reconnect with a sense of meaning and purpose or finding new uh, sources of meaning and focus. Dignity therapy is a positive life review focused on uh, legacy and moments where the patient has been feeling more connected to self and others. Now, all these modalities I've just reviewed uh, really rely on the verbal modalities, right? The patient has to be able to engage and actually talk and interact with a therapist. And sometimes this is not desirable. It's not ne even necessary. Um, so creative art therapies can always, always be considered in the term to uh, supportive psychotherapy. There is increasing evidence that music therapy and art therapy very effective in promoting connectedness, in uh, improving symptoms of depression and anxiety. So if ever possible, uh, I think it's an amazing resource for, for an, an asset for, for any program that has access to these wonderful therapies. And I would like to end this uh, initial portion uh, about depression with a simple, with a brief case, so that we can think through some of the assessment issues that uh, I have reviewed. The patient is a 63-year-old gentleman diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer about a year ago. He's followed by the palliative care team for progression of uh, symptoms. He's been unable to work. He's very anxious about finances. He spends most of the day on his recliner. Um, he has significant cough, which interferes with his sleep. He has lost about 10 pounds in three months. He has difficulty reading, which he used to enjoy. He moves slowly, feels very fatigued. He states that he feels like a burden. He's very upset that he cannot help his wife financially. For the past month, he's been more tearful and withdrawn. He speaks in short sentences and is often, often coughing during, during his speech. He admits, um, admits that he's thinking about dying and he wishes that he could just, um, wishes he could just sleep um, and, and not wake up. But he denies that he would actually kill himself. Ten years ago, he was treated with an antidepressant and therapy for clinical depression after the sudden death of his brother in a car accident. He was in the car, the patient was in the car, and suffered a traumatic brain injury with early post-traumatic seizure. 
So if we were to think about this case just within a couple of minutes, well, first of all, we have some symptoms that are not being um, probably adequately managed. So the cough is really interfering with his sleep, which may affect his energy level the next day. He's interfering with his speech. We may also speak to some of the withdrawals. So maybe he doesn't want to talk too much because um, the cough is really uh, difficult to, uh, to deal with. However, it sounds like this gentleman is suffering from both symptoms of advanced illness and also um, symptoms of depression. He's also suffering from depression. He's very anxious about finances, so there is an anxious component to his depression, and we should keep that in mind if thinking about an intervention and possibly medication. He's been more tearful and withdrawn, which is something that we uh, need to keep in mind in terms of depression, the psychological uh, symptoms. He's, uh, he has passive suicidal ideation, and this is when we really need to, to stop and, and assess and gently, gently assess what, what the patient is thinking about. And when the patient says he would not do it, he would not kill himself, it's always very important to ask why. Uh, we may feel reassured as clinicians that the patient saying, well, I won't do it. I absolutely would never do it. But we need to know what is keeping them from doing it. We want to make sure that this is something that is uh, valid and it's ongoing and it's not just a temporary um, thing that they're holding on to. Also, he had depression in the past, so he was treated, and he had post early post-traumatic seizures. So this would be something that we would keep in mind in terms of uh, considering uh, medication, but he has some real concerns about the future and about his wife's uh, financial um, well-being and he's very fatigued. So the treatment for this, a combined treatment for this gentleman was a clinical interview, exploration of passive suicidality, which we always want to do and just as a reminder, when we assess for suicidality, we want to use very clear language. Let's not use euphemisms, hurting yourself, harming yourself, doing something bad. I think it's important to use the word kill yourself. Have you considered that? Have you thought about that? Uh, we want to identify whether the patient has the ideation, a plan, and the means. And this is really how we conduct the suicidal uh, ideation. The patient was started on sertraline, 25 milligrams titrated to 150. He tolerated it well. The psychological symptoms really significantly improved. The endogenous symptoms, uh, interestingly, did enough did not improve, they were probably more related to the illness. But the psychological symptoms, the ability to engage and interact was very, uh, uh, the response was very good. We also had biweekly psychotherapy focused on positive life review and problem solving and really strategizing uh, in terms of what was possible to do to uh, uh, facilitate uh, the transition when, when he would die and, and make sure that his wife was okay financially. Symptom management, addressing the cough in a more proactive manner was also a very important part of improving this patient's quality of life. And now let's um, shift gears again, and thank you for um, uh, being with me. This is a lot of information in a short amount of time, uh, so I hope you're still there hanging in there with me. Um, Let's just talk about uh, anxiety in, in advanced illness. As we discussed, anxiety and depression are often, often comorbid, uh, clearly, so um, we, we want to be aware of that. But it's also true that some patients do not um, exhibit mood symptoms related to low mood or depression, but they can be very anxious. Symptoms of anxiety are normal in advanced illness, however, anxiety disorders are not, and persistent 
uh, debilitating anxiety should be treated. It's not normal, it's not expected. And again, it's one of those things that really prevents patients from experiencing what they would like to experience, connecting and uh, have well-being at a time that is so sensitive. The prevalence of anxiety disorders is about 10% in palliative care patients. The burden of untreated anxiety is significant. A study that, a multi-center study of over 600 patients um, demonstrated that patients who were suffering from severe anxiety had an increased interest in a hasten death, decreased ability to understand clinical information, which is really um, sad because patients who cannot understand clinical information cannot integrate it, they cannot participate in the treatment plan. Um, they have decreased trust in their physicians, they have decreased expectation of adequate symptom control at the end of life, and they usually have beliefs that they would be offered futile therapies. So the anxiety will also um, uh, trigger some negative fantasies about what their end of life may be, and um, this becomes really a, a, a mechanism that is a self-reinforcing mechanism, so more anxiety, more negative expectation, and, and more distress. What are the clinical manifestations of anxiety that we should look for? Anxiety affects all the domains and, and of human uh, functioning and affects different people in different ways. Uh, on, an emotional, uh, on the emotional side, you may notice that the patient is edgy um, and they may tell you that they have a sense of doom and impending doom and terror. They don't really know what, uh, what this is due to, but they really have this very um, stressful, uh, difficult experience. On the cognitive side, you may notice that patients have the, they acknowledge a sense of dread, there's fear, um, there are obsessions that are compulsive, really repetitive thoughts that are really disturbing, confusion, uncertainty, constant worry, uh, catastrophizing, which is a cognitive style where the patient always imagines the worst case scenario. Um, the patient is unable to take in information. You may feel a little frustrated when you interact with the patient with anxiety because they may appear also suspicious behaviorally, they may be avoidant, there may be compulsions, repetitive behaviors that they enact, psychomotor agitation, suspicious of you, you may get the sense that they're difficult patients, but really there is anxiety preventing them from connecting with you and the rest of the team. Um, there may be pronounced autonomic responses such as diaphoresis, diarrhea, nausea, uh, dizziness, tachycardia, or tachypnea and also overall uh, ongoing worries and concerns about what the end of life will be like, always imagining a negative scenario. There are several medical causes of anxiety that should always be identified first. Um, many are associated, um, cause of anxiety associated with specific cancers, of course, as we know, in lung cancer, there's anticipatory nausea and vomiting, a corticosteroid, of course, drug intoxication, metabolic disturbances, encephalopathy, um, uncontrolled pain, again, let's always um, uh, treat uh, a pain uh, actively uh, before diagnosing someone with, uh, with anxiety or even with a, another psychiatric disorder. In delirium, psychotic disorders, uh, cognitive impairment and depression, um, these are some of the causes of anxiety that are really significant and we should keep in mind. How do we assess anxiety? Well, we need to keep in mind that patients will not necessarily acknowledge or recognize or verbalize anxiety. So we need to really listen to pay attention to how the patient uh, talks, how they express themselves. Often they will use terms such as I'm concerned and scared and nervous and worried. And really, when we hear these terms and we get a sense that um, somatically the patient has some 
some agitation, some anxiety, we want to, we need to slow down and really explore how they're experiencing anxiety. Is it more of a thought? Is it disturbing their, their sleep, the way they're thinking? Is it more of a somatic component, so the heart is being fast and that scares them? Are they experiencing panic? Are they ever, do they ever feel that the uh, reactions, the autonomic response gets out of control, which can be a very scary uh, experience for patients? The uh, PHQ4 for anxiety and depression for patients who experience both anxiety and depression is a good um, uh, screening questionnaire that, that can be used effectively with this population. Again, as we did with depression, it's important to keep in mind some different elements of differential diagnosis. So depression, of course, patients can also be agitated and, and anxious. Um, but if we want to really differentiate between depression, major depression, um, without significant component of anxiety and anxiety disorder, in depression you will have more, you will see more of the suicidal ideation, brooding, the early morning awakenings and the diurnal uh, changes in mood that we generally don't see in an anxiety uh, disorder. In delirium there's profound anxiety of course, but there are also psychotic behaviors and delusions and altered cognition which generally we don't uh, necessarily see in, uh, in anxiety disorders. And in dementia, there's cognitive decline. There's anxiety, but also cognitive decline and a, a need, a desire to hide deficits that generally we don't see in anxiety. So these are the main anxiety disorders from the, uh, the DSM. Uh, adjustment disorder with anxious features, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and post-traumatic stress. Um, the hallmarks of these disorders really disconcerted, at least in generalized um, anxiety disorder and adjustment disorder with anxious features, this profound anxiety and worry. In generalized anxiety disorder, the patient worries all the time um, about anything, and the more you try to reassure the patient, the more uh, concerned they become. They worry, it's, it's like a self perpetuating mechanism. Panic disorder really the hallmark is um, the periods of intense fear and distress and sense of doom um, that can last between 20 to 30 minutes. In post-traumatic stress disorder we know that there is avoidance, numbness, the flashbacks and um, uh, a series of autonomic responses that really uh, generate profound distress in patients. I would say that the first line of treatment uh, to consider for anxiety, uh, unless it's an emergency, it's acute reaction, is really psychosocial treatment modalities because they are incredibly effective in addressing the cognitive, the emotional, and the autonomic uh, component of anxiety. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapies that really address all the cognitive component that can generate anxious thoughts and perpetuate anxious thoughts. Complementary therapies that are really evidence-based. Hypnotherapy, very effective. Music therapy, as we've reviewed with uh, depression, art therapy, uh, relaxation training, massage, and even Reiki. We have increased an increasing body and growing body of evidence for the utilization of these complementary therapies. They can be used with no side effects, no adverse effects. Of course, they have to be acceptable to the patient. But their delivery is feasible in the inpatient, in the outpatient setting, even in the home. And they all include a component of, uh, of training so that the, the patient uh, learns techniques they can effectively use and this really gives them more sense of control and promotes well-being. In terms of pharmacological treatment, benzodiazepines, as we know, are used for acute anxiety reactions and they're generally chosen based on the desired half-life. So a benzodiazepine with a longer half-life will may result in accumulation, in side effects, and more toxicity, uh, shorter-acting benzodiazepines 
um, can be very effective in the nausea and panic attacks. Patients with compromised hepatic function may function better with loazepam and tamazepam because they don't have active metabolites. Uh, but certainly, um, the use of accumulate, the use, the possible accumulation, the toxicity um, warrants a very slow taper. Uh, there's there are concerns about sedation, memory loss, delirium, and confusion. However, in acute anxiety reactions, sometimes it's really important to decrease the level of arousal before the patient can even engage in psychosocial interventions. And uh, for patients who suffer from chronic anxiety, uh, sometimes benzodiazepine is started first and then an SSRI is introduced so that we can have a, a long-term management of anxiety. And generally, uh, an SSRI such as acetylopram, for example, with more sedating anti-anxiety properties may be a good um, um, choice. And I would like to end this um, very uh, intense uh, review of depression and anxiety with another case. Um, this patient is a 50-year-old woman who's been living with a metastatic breast cancer for the past three years and is now receiving palliative radiation therapy for bone metastases. Past treatment has included lumpectomy, chemotherapy, and radiation. Her mobility is affected by moderate to severe hip pain, and she ambulates with a walker. She was recently started on hydromorphone. Um, as her mobility has decreased, she's become more anxious and worried about being alone. Over the past three weeks, she's been waking up at night with intense fear, palpitations, sweating, and shortness of breath. She cannot identify a trigger for the anxiety, but she thinks it's related to the anxiety about the future. These episodes last about 20 to 30 minutes, but she's usually unable to go back to sleep and watch television for another couple of hours. Um, she denies low mood and depression. She enjoys connecting with the family, so otherwise, uh, other than this episode, she reports good well-being. So it sounds as if this, this woman, this patient, is experiencing panic attacks. You probably will agree with that. She is. She has some challenges. The pain is being managed. Um, she has. She's very positive. She has a good family life. However, she wakes up at night. She has panic attacks at night um, with intense fear, palpitations, sweating, and shortness of breath. And um, and this is concerning, probably disturbing for this patient, more for this patient, because she uh, she has a really good life. Otherwise, she's not aware of any anxiety during. Uh, during the day. However, she's becoming a little bit more anxious because she's less mobile, so she worries about uh, what what could happen if she needed help and, and nobody was there to help her as her mobility decreases. Um, so this is really a case where there's this anxiety disorder, panic disorder, um, <clears throat> only at night, excuse me. And um, so what could be the treatment approaches for, for this patient to improve her quality of life? Because the loss of sense of control that one experiences during a panic attack is really incredibly unpleasant and uh, scary. So uh, she was started on escitalopram, 10 milligrams titrated to 20 milligrams daily uh, with good response, and also lorazepam, uh, 0.5 milligrams daily as needed. Uh, and this was the pharmacological intervention, and she responded well, and she tolerated well the SSRI. Um, also, she was um, trained, she received some training in relaxation and breathing techniques. And the very simple techniques that we uh, taught this patient is box breathing. And I'd like to, you're probably familiar with it, it's very simple. And I'd like to demonstrate in a couple of moments. Um, I will describe it for those of you who can see me on the camera. So this is really a technique where we combined um, 
rhythmic breathing, uh, diaphragmatic breathing would be optimal, but it, it's not necessary at the beginning as you're training the patient. So the patient is instructed to either draw a box on a piece of paper and follow each part of the box, or to trace the box up in the air with a finger, like as I'm, the way I'm doing uh, in camera. So the patient is instructed to breathe into the count of two as the patient follows one side of the box, so one, two, and then hold the breath for two as the patient is following the other side of the box, and then breathe out, exhale for two counts, and hold for another count. So I'm going to demonstrate it again following the thing. So I'm following this ideal, this imaginary box. Breathe in for the count of two, hold for two as you continue tracing the box, Exhale for the count of two, continuing tracing the box, and then hold for the count of two. So inhale, count of two, hold for the count of two, breathe out for the count of two, and hold for the count of two. And this cycle is repeated three times, and then the patient can keep uh, breathing normally. Why is this technique effective? First of all, it normalizes breathing. We hold to a count, a specific count, count to two, hold, and then the same count to two, hold. Sometimes it can also be done to the count of four, but if the patient is very anxious, they will not be able uh, to hold the breath for the count of four. So two is probably more reasonable initially. But also what it does with this uh, very simple technique of tracing an imaginary box or tracing it on a piece of paper following all of the sides of the box, the anxious mind is really refocused. The patient's mind is refocused on its task that is very simple and is combined with the breathing. So we have normalized breathing and we also have a kind of a distraction element that helps the patient refocus on their breath and calming down. And this was very effective for this patient. This is a very portable intervention, incredibly simple, that patients can use as they're sitting at the doctors, they're getting more anxious uh, before any kind of intervention. And again, just to remind you, just to repeat, the patients can, can simply trace with a finger an imaginary box and really concentrating on following all of the sides of the box as they're breathing in for two, hold for two, breathe out for two, and hold for two, and repeat the cycle. Uh, three times. Also in this particular case, we provided psychoeducation, which was very important. Uh, it was important to clarify for this patient that um, panic attacks are not life-threatening, that she was not having a heart attack, and she was, um, this was manageable. She could get back in control. She started using the box breathing technique, <clears throat> excuse me, very effectively. And that in conjunction with the medication was really useful. And also, another intervention that was helpful was installing a life alert. Uh, so that she could be reassured that if anything were to happen to her and her husband was not present, she could get help uh, right away. So in conclusion, um, depression and anxiety need to be treated very proactively. We need to identify medical causes, treat um, any unmanaged symptoms, and we really need to use all the combined, all the approaches that we have available, judicious use of medication with psychosocial, psychological, and complementary therapies to improve the quality of life of these patients and, and their families at this very, very sensitive time. I would like to thank you very much for your attention, and now I would like to answer some questions. If you have um, some questions, very good. So the first question, what can I do when a depressed patient needs medication and does not accept it? 
This is not an uncommon scenario. This is not an uncommon scenario. Um, patients' preferences need to be respected. And as we discussed, every uh, medication, every antidepressant really comes with some side effects. Um, I think what we need to do in, in, in treating depression, we need to start with psychosocial, psychological interventions, because they can actually be utilized with or without medication. Um, so we really need to implement a treatment plan that is initially psychosocial. Um, and we don't necessarily need to use, utilize medication. However, uh, once we implement the psychosocial treatment approach, it would be helpful to understand and explore what is the uh, reasoning behind, what are the concerns that the patient have. Not to change their mind, but to really understand if there are any beliefs or perhaps there have been any past, negative past experiences that have colored uh, their current decision. Are these beliefs based in, in some experience or, or some, something that they've heard, some concern? And if we can deconstruct the concern and we think the medication can be helpful, we can address it therapeutically, but without pushing medication. So this is really uh, about the trust and taking the time to therapeutically explore uh, what are the concerns. Um, at times I've, I've um, explored this with patients and I've heard some patients are concerned uh, about the medication changing them. This is something that I've heard quite uh, frequently. Patients, for example, are very focused on a sense of mastery and control will say, I don't want to use a crutch or may say, um, I don't want the medication to change me. They're very concerned about what the medication will do. And in that case, without pushing, again, we don't have an agenda, but without pushing, we can explain that actually what we're hoping um, with suggesting this medication is that the medication will help you be more who you are because depression is um, really negatively impacting your ability to be who you are, right? Depression is not pleasant. It's interfering with the things that you want to do and things that you want to experience. So what we're hoping is that medication will allow you, would allow you to be more who you, you fully are. And sometimes this refrain um, has also helped patients relax and, uh, and accept uh, a, a trial if uh, the, the team really feels that that's necessary. But again, without pushing and Remembering that um, um, psychotherapy is also an evidence-based intervention that has proven to, proven to really improve symptoms of depression quite significantly. Okay, Would, do you, oh, this is an interesting question. Uh, do you think that uh, the first case, Mr. CV, should consider hospice? That's a very good question. Um, it sounds like it would be beneficial, doesn't it? Um, he's really having more difficulty. Hospital would allow him to uh, receive more support, not only for him, but also for his wife. Uh, because his wife is witnessing his decline and, um, and really he's being more withdrawn. So once the depression improves, um, I, I think it would be really beneficial to, to give this patient more support. And that's an, a nice conversation that should take place and hopefully um, in, in that case. I mean, what, I, what I'm describing is a, is a real case um, where, the, where hospice uh, w was not part of the picture. But um, in another situation, it definitely would have been a very uh, positive, um, a very positive thing to do. Um, they really didn't, um, the, the actual uh, patient in the case uh, did not want to accept hospice. They had a hormonal phase and they had um, personal um, 
uh, choices, personal beliefs that really interfere with their ability to, to accept hospice. But um, in another case, I think that would have been optimal. So the palliative care team really did what they could, uh, making also some home visits to provide uh, a similar level of support. That's a very good question, very good question. Suicide, is, oh, this is a very interesting question. Is suicidality always due to depression? Um, very good point. Um, not necessarily, and, and I think we need to really deconstruct the, uh, the idea of suicidality. Um, we actually, in the future, we will have a webinar available that will focus exclusively on assessment and management of suicidality in palliative care patients. And thoughts of death, let me just say that thoughts of death and thinking of death as a backup plan, thinking about death as a uh, suicide as a backup plan is, is not uncommon. It's not uncommon in cancer patients, not uncommon in patients uh, who receive initial diagnosis and go through treatment and face several challenges. It's often a backup plan. The patient uh, finds relief in thinking, well, if things get really too difficult, I, this is, I have a way out. Um, but, um, but this will be a little bit different from actually uh, being suffering from major depression and thinking that the suffering is so profound that the only way out is uh, to kill oneself. We also need to uh, expand the, the cost of the suicidality to also include, and we couldn't do that in this webinar, but we will do it in the next webinar, uh, the webinar that will address suicidality, suicidality in the medically ill, uh, the concept of physician-assisted uh, death and the euthanasia. So these are, these are all constructs that uh, need to be explored in the context of uh, suicidality. So I would say, no, depression is not the only cause. But depression is a reversible, a possibly reversible cause of uh, suicidality. So this is really when it needs to be addressed because patients may feel very differently once a depression has been treated. And another com another question, um, can you comment on the use of ketamine for depression? This is very interesting. Uh, there's a large body, an increasing um, body of, of research that ketamine um, well, first of all, the glutamate is, is involved in the pathophysiology of depression. And ketamine um, can be effective in relieving intractable depression um, because of, of its action. Its action uh, it's action in, in the neurotransmitter of, of, of glutamate. So um, there are um, studies in the um, healthy with healthy patients that have shown that ketamine was actually effective in reversing intractable depressions, was well tolerated uh, with positive results. We really don't have uh, randomized control studies in the hospice and palliative care setting. We have a couple of case studies where actually um, the results were very, were very positive. Um, we certainly need more research and uh, we need more studies because anything that we can do, any um, strategy, uh, medication-related and otherwise, that can uh, be useful in improving the quality of life of patients in the last uh, days or weeks of their life, uh, it would be incredibly worthwhile. So that's a very, very good question. I think we will see more and more in the future, more and more research. Well, I would like to uh, thank you so much for uh, your thoughtful questions, um, for uh, your participation and your attention. Uh, this was a real pleasure and I know it was a lot of information. If there are some questions that I know there are some questions that I haven't been able to address because this is all the time we have today. But please feel free to email the Institute and uh, we will be happy 
to uh, to reply. Um, I would like to remind you to uh, complete the webinar evaluation uh, because this will really help us in future planning. And I would like to announce the next webinar, which is titled Assessment and Management of Dyspnea in Advanced Illness. It will be presented by Dr. Pauline Lesage on March 26, 2015 at 12.30. Again, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for your participation and attention, and I will see you next time.